Welcome to the Community Builder Podcast. The world is our classroom, and every moment is an opportunity to understand human connection at a newer level. On this podcast, we'll explore the minds of active community builders as they strive to leave their imprint on the world. Travis King. Let's build. Before we get started, we would like to thank our sponsor, Cruise Control Music, the ultimate audio branding experience. Cruise Control Music creates custom, authentic sounds and music to showcase your brand identity and is a direct reflection of your vision, goals, and values. If you're looking to start or level up your podcast experience, log on to cruisecontrolmusic.com. I had a little bit of trouble at first, to be honest, because I was like, what does Richard like to be like called? Is it a speaker? Do you like to be known as a, found, a, a co-founder, entrepreneur? Because I saw you had a lot of uh, just fun things that you've worked on. So I'm like, what does Richard like to be called? So the funny thing is that I often, like if you see my Twitter bio, I, like, I'm just me, right? And I, I understand that I certainly don't want to be just a business person. I don't want to be just a speaker. I also find things like speaker, author, and and entrepreneur. They're all the same. They're all the same thing, right? I, I learn stuff in my business. I write about it, then I speak about it, and it's all the same stuff. So, so I, I try to steer away, but I've certainly, uh, you know, founded a few businesses. I speak a lot. I, uh, I have written a few books. I write a bunch of columns. Uh, I guess I fit somewhere in the context of your typical entrepreneur. Okay. So no, that's that's completely fair. And it's and it's it's also bad that I actually try to put you in I literally try to put you in a in a category. <laughs> Cause that's what I'm so used to. Well, but I guess that help, that's helpful, right? Yeah. No, for sure. So I, I don't when I'm very suspicious of people who call themselves a speaker. Because I think, well, what are you actually doing? Where are you drawing? Like that's not a job. <laughs> like you, you speak about stuff that you figured out because of your job. You know, so I've got a friend who's a polar explorer, but he makes much more of his money speaking. But he doesn't call himself a speaker. Speaking is a byproduct of being a polar explorer. Uh, I've, you know, and I, I learned something in my business in one day that I speak about the next day that somebody else can apply in their business the day after that. And that to me is that speaking is a byproduct. Writing is a byproduct. Now I do get a difference. You know, Malcolm Gladwell is a writer, but he also speaks, and and so. But I'm also aware that uh, even within the context of business, uh, business is what I do now, but it's certainly not what I hope to be defined by. Yeah, I, I love that. And I think that is, is very important. And could you touch on um, like some of the things that you would like people to remember? Like I know um, you wrote the book Legacide, which would you mind like filling people in a little bit about kind of like why you wrote that and talk a little bit about like what you want to be more remembered as and not just like, yeah, just... Touch on the legacy a little bit. As I said, we can go anyway. You you just, if I'm rambling, you just cut me off. Um, Yeah. So I guess, would you mind, I, through that talk, through the TEDx that you did at Johannesburg, you talked a little bit about um, Reimagined from Tom Peters, and you kind of took us through that really visual, that visual story of 9-11 from back in the day. And then you kind of moved into talking a little bit about Legacide, which is one of a book that you wrote. Um, So could you tell us a little bit about Legacide, you know, what your thinking was behind that? 
and kind of how that touches on you wanting to, you know, leave behind more of yourself to the world? Okay, so Legacide isn't really about that, but I'll, I'll take you through it. So what happened is one of the businesses we ran was an innovation consultancy called 21 Tanks. And in it, I was hoping to be like an IDEO. We wanted to recreate the next iPhone and be hired to develop this big innovative thing. And, you know, we were really, really excited about the cool stuff we we're going to create. The problem was, well, not the problem, the, the luck we had was that all of our clients were large corporations. So these big corporations would hire us and we were excited because they had big budgets and money and the wherewithal to do really, really cool things. And then they would hire us. And first of all, the average person who walked in the door wasn't doing something earth shattering. It was really, really big in their universe, but it wasn't big in the universe. You know, it's uh, rolling out some new thing for one subset of the clients at a really major bank. And we would come up with these concepts and we would start brainstorming what the world would look like. And invariably, they weren't able to do it. And slowly but surely, we realized that that there was a problem that was consistent across the world. And this is almost always universally true with large corporations or with established businesses. And it was this premise, that in an established business, innovation doesn't happen when you start doing something new. Innovation happens when you stop doing something old. And the thing that was killing off innovation was uh, being right before. So we were correct up to this point. Therefore, we assume we'll be correct in this thinking going forward. And our entire job became not about turning on new switches, but about, you know, holding their hand through turning off old ones. And the book Legacide is built around that, that legacy thinking is the silent killer of innovation, that we often try and build off the successes of the past, when in fact, we need to understand that we're starting a kind of some degree of a clean slate uh, at any given time. And this is becoming increasingly truer as progress goes on. Awesome. Yeah, I I actually found that super interesting because a, a, a lot of times, and I have, and I love that the quote also: "The illiterate of the 21st century will not be those who cannot read, write, um, but those who cannot learn, unlearn, and relearn." From Alvin Toffler, and I, I think that's so important because now more than ever, um, we have access to so many tools and resources and people to where we can learn at the snap of a dime. And if we can't unlearn, it's going to make it very difficult to innovate moving forward. Right. And it's almost impossible to uh, unlearn by yourself. It's why we, our entire methodology, we call it a perspective lab, is we realize that any group of smart people struggling with an innovation-based problem was never because they weren't smart enough. It's always because they're too smart. And to quote my friend Howard Mann, it becomes very hard to read the label from inside the bottle. And our job was to turn around and say, hey, don't hire us because uh, we know your business. Hire us because we don't. And so we we said that we have a methodology and a way of thinking about the world. And you have all the smart stuff you need. Because I think one of the problems, the typical way that they would solve this is they would go to another group of really, really smart consultants who also had a, a predefined lens of the world. And we were saying that that hasn't worked for you and that's not working for you because you have a problem of too much knowledge and you're trying to solve it with more knowledge. This is like trying to put out a fire with gasoline. And what we're bringing is something totally different to the mix. <laughs> and it worked pretty well for us. Uh, but the, the, the funny side effect was the realization that the problem we set out to solve uh, or the solution we set out with to solve it was completely wrong. We weren't going to solve the problem of these corporations by giving them new ideas. We're going to solve their problems by uh, telling them which ones to stop doing. And that became our entire premise. What legacy thinking is in your business that's holding you back? Got it. No, that's awesome. Um, and in terms of like how you've implemented and practiced that, I guess, could you talk or tell maybe a story or two about, you know, 
what it was like telling a company that they need to change how they're thinking um, in order to innovate? One story came in, there was an organization who came to us and they had this really, really compelling product that they'd been selling a certain way for years and they had an accepted sales cycle of six months. And they were a really big business. Uh, they go to this an IT firm or uh, they were an information business and they were going to big corporations and they were selling a certain way. And they wanted to know how we could increase that and they wanted to figure out is there a way that it could scale better and potentially internationally. So the basic offering was that they go into an organization, uh, like a really, really large one, say one of the banks here has on average 40,000 employees, and they would go to them and say, listen, we figure out you're wasting a lot of money in your use of telephony and all your call centers and across the business. We're going to save you money in this business, and all we want to do is take a share of this. So you're already spending, let's say, a million dollars. We're going to say to you, well, we'll cut that down to $500,000 and we just want half of what we save. Now, theoretically, this should be a completely compelling and easy sale. It's costing you nothing if we save you nothing. But what I couldn't get my head around is then why would the sales cycle be six months? Like it didn't make any sense to me. So they were eventually getting them to say yes, but it was hard. Now, this is nonsensical. So we were trying to think what to do. So we, we put together a perspective lab and we brought in a brain trust member who was the head of one of the local commercial banks. So part of our business model said that if you hire us to do work, uh, you're agreeing as part of your payment, we're subsidizing part of your payment, and you agree to sit in the lab of a future business, a future client of ours that is non-competitive. So we would have somebody from South African breweries who was at one stage the largest brewery on the planet sitting in an uh, innovation lab for the Nokia. And then we'd have the Nokia person sitting in an innovation lab for a bank. And in this case, the banker was sitting in the innovation lab for the software firm. And so the banker's sitting there the whole time and, and he's kind of going through this and he's thinking, and you could see this rattling in, in, in his head. And he eventually turned around and he said, guys, but you've got this all wrong. He says, your like, entire value proposition is broken. And this, this client looked at them and he said, like, it's nobody in the bank's job to save money. Like literally nobody's KPI is save, save the, the bank money. So you're, you're speaking a language, you're telling people something that they simply don't give a shit about. And he said, like, you need to understand you're going and selling to the head of the call center and you're telling them you can save money. And there's simply that person's mandate. There's no place on their KPIs, on their goals or anywhere where it says save money. What their job is, is to have a better call center or to reduce the amount of clients leaving or any of these things. And our realization was that we had to change the idea from uh, saving money to unlock potential. So the methodology we came up with was we went to them and we turned around and said, you know, what is the biggest problem facing your business right now? And they said, it's this, whatever it was. And we said, if we could unlock, unlock half a million dollars, half a million dollars right now, if we could provide you half a million dollars of extra capital towards solving, uh, solving this problem, how would you use it tomorrow to make a difference? And they said, well, it might be something as simple as putting in this new CRM system we wanted or upgrading the chairs in the call center, whatever it was. And, and then we said to them, well, what if we told you we could unlock that potential for you within uh, the next month? And they said, well, that would be very compelling. They said, great. Well, this is how we're going to do it. And then they told them the offering. So it was no longer about saving money, which was what the premise the entire business had been built under. We can save money for businesses. It was now about we can unlock potential. And this might sound like a subtle thing, but we dropped their lead time down to two weeks from six months. So they were able to now close within two weeks. 
And it was just that little bit of outside perspective from the person saying, but we don't have a money-saving problem. And often we're solving problems for customers that they just don't see as the problems, even if it seems so obvious to us. I mean, in today's terms, you might call that product market fit. But it's not just that, because the product and the market did fit, but the conversation right. did. I think that's so... It's- it's wild in my head because you, it's so funny how it's just a simple perspective change and just having, like you said, someone from a bank in a room with someone who's not from a bank. And I'm just very curious on how we can even take that and apply it to something like community building and think about what it's like to have, you know, just an outside perspective looking in. Um, yeah, and like, do you, is that kind of a regular practice for you? Almost the only way we do things. So you, it's very, very hard to learn anything from a bubble. You know, I was just in Y Combinator startup school for a new business talk drawer. And the one thing that I would want to say frustrated me, but their entire universe and every lesson is based on other startup founders. And every single one of these startup founders, to some degree, now they may be quite a diverse group across gender and race and things like this, but they, for the most part, they'll look and sound and act like startup founders. They use the same language. They, you know, they, they talk the same way. They dress the same way. And they, they felt like we were getting the same person in over and over and over again. And sometimes you learn more from, from people who are some degree of naive in your space, but experts in theirs. That, that's why, you know, NASA wasn't going to be able to build uh, the kind of rockets that the X Prize allowed people to build. Because NASA, you know, they knew, they knew how to build rockets and they just tried to make better versions of those. Whereas what you need is somebody who's somewhat naive in the problem you're trying to solve. Now, even within community building, you know, I'm very, probably the community I'm most involved in is the board game community. And like, it's a very active community and it's really, really powerful. But I was listening to a lesson the other day and it was based on how do we build better uh, board game communities? And the answer was, we got to look what the knitting community does. So it turns out knitters, are like one of the biggest communities in the planet. And they've solved certain things that we haven't solved. And so what was happening is we were looking at the insights in our smaller group and saying, well, who is the most successful in our group right now? And saying, well, how have they done that? And then trying to replicate that. But what we're doing is we're replicating the behaviors of the best people within the board game community instead of looking at other even more powerful communities and replicating the behavior of their, uh, from them. And to me, that's what we have to be doing. It turns out in the knitting community, for example, it was how did people make the leap from being hobbyist knitters to people selling patterns online? And it turned out that that massive leap happened when they joined a knitting group. So if they just existed in the online community, it wasn't enough to push them to go professional. But as soon as they joined a group of people that met, you know, on a Thursday afternoon and they all knitted together... Then when somebody saw their nice, unique pattern, they would say something like, oh, wow, that's phenomenal. That's amazing. Uh, You should totally sell that. And it was that little personal nudge. And it was the realization that the peer pressure of a real live community that you can touch and feel that somebody's sitting in front of you was like something like 95% more powerful than when that same push happened online. So it makes you realize, well, how do we replicate this? And, And we need to get our perspectives from places we weren't looking. Just looking at people who are in your industry doing it well is not enough. You got to look at people outside your industry and measure against them. I can give you one other example. You know, that would be awesome. So one of our clients uh, had a problem. It's a company called uh, Bosch. It's the kitchen company. Yep, dryers, all that stuff. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, That in this context here, they were the market leaders. 
And from a design point of view, they were so far ahead of their competitors that actually they didn't have anywhere else to look. So they were measuring themselves against the best in the market, which was them. And the realization was that they were not able to accelerate as fast as they could because it's quite hard to accelerate when you're not chasing. And so what we had to do when we worked with them is we had to chase the frame that instead of them being the best in kitchens, we had to frame where they were versus discretionary uh, purchases and houses. Because we realized that nobody actually needs to have a, uh, you know, nobody in the world needs a $20,000 oven. You know, you could probably buy a $500 oven or even cheaper. But yet, you know, within their stable, they were selling these really, really expensive ones. And so we realized that they weren't competing against other kitchen appliance companies. They were actually competing against uh, an art piece on a wall, or they were competing against, you know, companies like Apple and uh, high-end design. And so we had to reframe their entire business and stop having them look at their competition as what it was and try to give them a new perspective on the space in which they fit and the category in which they fit. And and that was the job. So you can always, by by exiting your frame, and putting yourself somewhere else, you have a whole new set of measurement criteria that I think becomes very powerful. But I apologize, I'm rambling now. Oh, no, it's okay. No, I, I think that's super relevant. Um, because like, again, when you're so focused, and it's funny because a lot of the communities that we find, especially like in the US at least, um, are the tech communities. Those are the largest communities right now. And those are the ones that are spinning up, I'd say the majority of innovation um, at least from a, a technological standpoint goes. Um, and these tech companies all are in the same boat, I feel like. They're all leading. You know, you have the Amazons and the Googles of the world that are competing against each other. But again, when you're so far out and ahead of the competition, it's like, well, how does a Google or an Amazon or an Apple think, oh, wait, maybe we should look at a knitting community <laughs> and repurpose our thinking? So I think that's a very good point. Yes, and, and again, in many cases it's easier to replicate some of these behaviors uh, because they didn't, they, a lot of times these other communities, if you look at the other people that build communities with a meetup, a lot of those people have done that self-organized. They've used you guys maybe as a platform, but they've self-organized and done it without money. Whereas we're trying to replicate these communities. And, and this is why from a tech point of view, when, when we were in this Y Combinator startup school, we were looking at everything and we were thinking, where do we raise funding? What do we do? And we were kind of writing down all the notes of the way that all these businesses did that. And then I was like, but hold on a second, I'm a 44-year-old guy with 21 years of uh, running my own business. Why would I possibly want to start everything from scratch again? Why would I not try and uh, take the best of their ideas from stuff that I already knew and build on it from there? So, so we tried to look outside the tech community to build a better tech business. Now, obviously, the jury is out on whether that will work. But we certainly seem to be getting traction now. Right. And then when you say getting traction, which specific like venture or like project are you talking about? So uh, one of our businesses and the one that I'm full-time involved in at the moment is called TalkTor. And when we, we knew it was a tech offering. So, so maybe a little bit of background. I started when I was, well, when I was uh, in my very early 20s, I was a rock and roll roadie. So I did lighting for bands like Iron Maiden and Def Leppard and Bon Jovi. and in the off-season, when you were touring in South Africa, you didn't have work. Uh, so I realized that I was able to go to big corporations and say to them, listen, your conferences are crappy. We can turn them into these kind of, we'll make you as the CEO look like a rock star. So I would sell them this lighting, sound, staging, and AV. 
And they got very excited about this and they bought it for their conference. And then they walked into this amazing spectacle of an extravaganza of a show. And then they stood up on the stage and they were crap. And I realized that you can't fix a bad steak with, with pretty garnish, right? You have to fix the steak itself. So I started a presentation company when I was 22. No, not because or I thought that I loved presentations, but because I hated them so much, I felt that there was an opportunity to fix stuff there. And for years, that's what we built. So Missing Link, my company is now 21 years old or just a bit older. And uh, we work with companies all over the world and we help people present better. Uh, we develop the presentations, we write the presentation and conference strategies for them. And we try and activate audiences by doing those things well. But the problem was it was quite a hard business to scale. And then I realized that we, we live in a time now where I could take certain of the thinking and scale that through the top drawer offering that we've come up with, which I'll explain in a second. But we went on to, on to the Y Combinator Startup School and everything that they were kind of uh, preaching to some degree assumed that we were starting from nothing. So I was looking at everything, building funding, building these things. And at some point, I can't remember who it was. It was one of the guys, Michael Seibel, I think. And it was kind of that realization that, well, or you could just go out and sell. And I realized for, you know, 21 years, I've been dealing with the top executives in really, really big companies. And so we just started going out and selling. And instead of selling to end users to use our product, we started selling to corporations. So instead of selling a $25 per user per month contract, uh, we've now just sold a, you know, $150,000 contract. And it didn't take any more work. It was just uh, working on the back of the network and the community of, of business people I'd already built on. And so it was that kind of change in perspective for me that was uh, necessary. Got it. And that's that's so exciting because I was looking at Talkter a little bit and just taking a quick look through, you know, some of the, the different presentations you've worked on and projects. I feel like that's it's got to be something fun to work on. Yeah. So the basic premise of Talkdraw is that if imagine, say, Netflix, Blinkist, and PowerPoint met in a club and they got a little bit drunk. And then they went home and then nine months later, they had a baby. That's what we would be. So we turn content, smart content, like a business book into presentable information for business leaders. We work under the belief that the difference between a leader and a manager is their ability to communicate. But writing presentations is hard. So we're saying, well, what happens if we did that heavy lifting for you? What if we distilled the core concepts into a pre-created coached presentation deck that you could start, go on a Sunday evening, you could spend an hour with, and the following morning, you could present with the skill of a professional speaker. And that's exactly what we do. And we've proven it. It works time and again, like it does exactly what it says in the box. You will do some rehearsals. And the next day, you will stand in front of your team and you will present with the skill of a professional speaker. And we will increase that level of skill over and over and over again as you repeat it. Because the realization in the years that I've written uh, or, or owned Missing Link, a presentation company, and you know the premise of the new book I wrote, Boredom Slayer, is that you write a good presentation before you deliver it. People think presenting is about having speaking skills. Turns out we can all speak. Most of us are capable of holding a good conversation. What we're not good at is writing. And what we've done is we've said, well, we'll take the content you want to communicate and we will write that for you and you will stand up and deliver that to your team and you will nuance that and make it your own in your delivery in such a way that you're able to make it feel like your own presentation and get your team's own response and customize the whole thing for them without changing a single slide. It's Netflix for presentation. Wow. And I, and so like, does it, does it work off of a, it sounds like it works off of a framework that you put people, like people can use this framework and then they apply their own little personalization to each presentation. Is that how it usually goes? 
Yeah, so personalization as a speaker, if you see me talk, depending on who I'm speaking to, I'll often change what I'm saying in real time in the moment. The slide is supposed right. to be a, a miniature sandbox. Each visual aid's got a job of getting across a core point. The story that I deliver in that, uh, in you know, in that sandbox is often changed as per the audience or the amount of time I have or what I'm doing, and we try and change people, train people to do that. So you might, we'll put the basic building blocks of the presentation together and all the slides are there and that, that will remain consistent behind you. In fact, one of the things we've intentionally not done is allow you to edit anything that's behind you. What we do give you is uh, freedom within a frame, right? So we give you a frame freedom that says within the confines of this narrative structure, you can take the presentation wherever you need it to go. And we coach you and we actually, each single presentation, we try and encourage you to focus on a different part of your speaking. It might be your hand gestures. It might be your pausing. It might be how you build up your voice and when you bring it down. But we only let you focus on one of these things, each presentation, and the rest of that talk we want you to deliver in, in order to get a response from your teams. And our core offering started off as being, you know, I'm a member of uh, the EO Entrepreneur Organization. It's a, a community of 13,000 entrepreneurs around the world. And at first I thought, well, I want to build a tool for them, for people like me who can stand up and, you know, stand in front of my team and deliver a presentation. And we have that offering in, in place. But the realization for us is the real opportunity existed in going to companies with teams all over the world and delivering global company information through the mouths of local company leaders. So now somebody at a head office wants to make a cultural change in their business. The current way they do that is they record it on a video and they distribute that video everywhere and they expect people to watch it. But we know that's not how people engage. And it disintermediates leadership at a ground level. So what we do is we say, no, we're going to take it one little step before then. And we're going to do all of that up to the point of the leader. And then the leader of that team is going to stand up and deliver a message. And so they're creating these micro little communities, uh, micro levels of, of uh, leader-led leader teams rather than just being these kind of disintermediated managers. Yeah, that's so important. And decentralization is like another huge theme um, that has allowed some of these other, you know, corporations to scale so fast and so strong. Um, it's like having this, you know, team outside of the office and team in these local areas that allow, you know, these companies to have such a large footprint, but also adapt to the needs of their local communities. Um, like a community in Australia is different than one in New York. That's different than one in Europe. So definitely think that's so important. And it's great that you created such a useful tool um, for these people to use. Yeah, because we believe wholeheartedly in that, but we believe it comes with a loss. It becomes with a loss of some feeling of being led day to day, and we want to bring that back. So we want to make it easy for, as I said, that global company information to be delivered through the minds of those local leaders. Got it. And it's funny too, because that's one of the things that uh, we actually do help clients with a lot here at Meetup is actually helping them find local leaders on the ground. Um, our platform has been, you know, very well suited to help identify these people. Um, so it's definitely nice to hear that someone else also sees value in you know finding local leaders, promoting that message, but then also um, just instilling trust back into the community because it's, it's you know way easier to build trust on the ground than it is to build it outside. And I think from that same presentation that I watched, it was... Um, it, I don't know if... I can't remember exactly the quote, but it was something along the lines of, if you're trying to fix the country of Africa, like you have to fix it with someone who's from that country. Is that... Uh, Kofi Annan, the 
recently deceased uh, head of the UN, he said, Africa's problems can only be solved by Africans. I think that might be the right. quote you're referring to. I think I did that talk like eight years ago. But yeah, uh, yeah, but definitely. It really, really can, right? And it's also this idea of uh, there's just a completely different frame. And it's always easier. And to some degree, and I guess this goes against the idea of uh, perspective. But it is very, very hard for you to solve African problems if you don't understand the problems in the context of being an African. However, within that framework, uh, you would still need to have people outside trying to think of new ways to do things. Because a person who solved a postal problem in the United States, say an e-commerce company in the United States, you know, you could come up with something and say, this is amazing. And this is exactly what we should do. And we just have, you know, post the parcels to them, you know, every day. But, uh, you know, I can't receive posts from the United States. If I want to get posts from the United States, I send it to a Florida-based dropshipping facility. And then I pay to courier it to South Africa because I understand that if there's anything of even vague value that exists, uh, it's going to be stolen before it gets to me. So you can't solve, you couldn't arrive here with a frame. That's why for years, Amazon actually stopped shipping to South Africa because it simply required them changing the way they operated too much in order to guarantee the same level of service. Whereas Take-A-Lot came here, that's a, it's the kind of South African version of Amazon and said, well, we understand the constraints of operating here and we're going to build our business with that mindset going in. And so that's why that organization has managed to, to build a massive, we've got our own version of Amazon here, that everybody uses because uh, they understood the context in which they existed. Now I think it's time. Now Amazon will come in and disrupt because that heavy lifting has been done for them. Right, which makes practical business sense. But that's 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 also very crazy to think that there's another, you know, there's there are other worlds all over the place that you know are completely different from ours. Sure, um, but it also is a better. And, and, it's smart for Amazon to behave that way. You know, the, I did a new TEDx talk a few weeks ago in Cape Town, and I spoke about this idea that it's the lie of the first mover advantage, as we're all taught this power of being first and, you know, this first mover advantage. But actually, it's generally a first mover disadvantage. In fact, the real advantage comes for the fast fixer, the person who can look at something that was built already and say, hmm, I can fix that. I like what they've done, but it could be better and I can fix it. Because you're not doing any of the work. And just as that person, you know, they built their version of something and they've done all of this work and they've spent years deving something and building something up there and they've just finished their marathon. At that point, you can start your sprint. And that's what Amazon can do here. They can walk in and say, well, we've left take a lot to build everything, to get it all in place. We can look at how they've done it and we can just come in and deploy. And I think there's a lot more power in being a fast fixer than there is in being a first mover. Yeah, I, no, I love that. I couldn't couldn't agree with you anymore. And there's another quote. Um, I wish I had. <laughs> I wish I could find more picture perfect quotes. Um, but one thing that I think you said was the best way, the best and only way to uplift the community is to educate and empower the community to do it themselves. Let them tear down the walls. Um, I guess could you talk a little bit about that and what sorts of things that you've done in the past to help you know people do this. Well, I mean, that particular example came from the tearing down of the Berlin Wall. And it was the idea that when the Berlin Wall came down, it wasn't a, you know, legislation that was passed and somebody said you have permission. It was a completely community, eventually the community, it kind of was a groundswell that started, you know, a month before in Leipzig, Leipzig. 
And then it was the community that ended up moving and literally walking up to the wall and tearing it down. And you have to do your best to create that kind of groundswell uh, and, you know, allow the people. And this was specifically written for large organizations. The organizations try to lead from the top and they try to create this cultural change at a strategic level. But actually, we use the word strategy um, incorrectly. The new book I'm writing is called The Death of Strategy. And it basically says that in today's day and age, a lot of what we're thinking is actually tactical. A lot of what we're calling strategy is tactical. It's a tactic that is deployed by a group of people at the ground level, because that's where a lot of meaningful change happens. And if we go in understanding that, then in fact, it changes our relationship with big thinking and says, well, all we need to do is to define a strategic destination, the right place this business needs to be at a fixed period of time. I refer to this as a victory condition. So what is the victory condition of this organization over a fixed period of time? Communicate that and then give a frame freedom. So that is uh, uh, allow people to move within a certain frame and say, insofar as you're going to get us here by that time within this frame, you can do whatever you want and be tactical. And this is the idea of saying you're creating this group of people with a shared set, a shared destination and saying, just get there. Get there within you know, the legal confines of the culture or values or whatever the organization is. And we see this working so much better and it's so much more effective. It allows your people to feel that they have some degree of autonomy, but it, it, all that autonomy is just drived as fuel uh, or is manifest as fuel to drive the organization towards a target. So you're not saying to people, here's the strategy, do it. You're saying, here's the place, get us there. And provided they buy into that and they agree with that destination and that's your job, uh, then they will, you know, work nights and weekends trying to make that happen. So all you have to do is give them a reason to believe. Give them a reason to believe. No, I, that that makes so much sense. Um, I think it's so important to, and especially just be, being someone that's been on so many different teams, it's like when you get told certain things, like you get told what to do, no one really likes being told what to do, um, at least not that many people I know. Uh, and so when you empower people, it definitely does give that, you know, more sense of belief, belonging, and it gives people to trust you more. So I, I definitely um, love where you went with that. So let's say, let's say you were somehow put onto our team at TalkCore. Now, funny enough, it, I guess the coincidence is when we first came up with the idea, it was originally called PAL, uh, and it was a year and a half ago on a snowboarding trip. We came up with this idea in the very, very beginning. We spoke about Meetup being a service that we were going to use because we realized that one of the ways to roll this out had to be that we wanted to have, and we called them Thursday night sessions, where we wanted to be a competitor to an organization like Toastmasters. And we wanted people to self-organize in groups where they knew what presentation they would be doing the next day and have these kind of prezo jam sessions where they'd be able to self-critique each other and do these things. And let's say I said to you that I still wanted uh, that to be the case. And for whatever reason, Meetup had mm -hmm. decided to partner with us. And they said, okay, they can get behind this. They want leaders meeting all over the world, having these meetups and prezo jamming together for the talks that they were going to be doing the next week. My job would not to be to tell you and the team at Meetup uh, what it was, uh, what it was we needed. My job, and I believe as a leader, would be to say, this is the vision we have. I believe that I can change the world's relationship with presentation. And I believe if we can change the way people present meaningful ideas, we can change the way the world turns, right? Because there have been so many amazing ideas that have been so poorly presented that they are dying on cutting room floors. Now, let's say I can get a small team of people that meet up behind this and to believe in our vision and our goal and to say our strategic destination is within a year from now, we want to have uh, people self-organizing, 
groups of entrepreneurs to do these presentations one night a week, uh, wherever that in 50, in 50 uh, cities around the world. And let's say you guys all agreed. The moment I get you to agree, I can step away. And let's say we had a weekly update meeting. I don't have to tell you what to do ever. I don't have to check anything. I simply have to check that you feel that you're progressing towards the victory condition. And even if the world changed and your software changed and everything changed, you would constantly just be able to self-adjust because you're always saying, based on the world as it looks today and the condition of victory that we share, how would we best get there? And that would be the job. And that's what we need. And that's how we would roll out and create a grant swell uh, within a large organization to get meaningful change. And I think it's a lot more powerful than telling people what to do. Yeah, it's super interesting. And I'm just thinking like, when you're doing it in like a, like a country's Specifically, I'm just thinking like the U.S. because um, you um, brought it up a little bit. Um, like, how are there? Th- like, would you connect the leaders from, per se, like someone in New York, in California, and then kind of get them on the same page and understand the direction of the overall organization? Like, how do you get those 50 leaders like on the same page? Is it just with the the belief and vision? Yeah. So one one the way we currently do it, and so let's say. Uh, we'll go and we'll sit with just the 10 people in an organization to define the victory condition. So we don't need everybody to define it. We need, you know, organizations are still led from the top for the most part. They're not all holocratic. And so you'll have, let's say, these guys in New York City, uh, and they will def- they will define what that victory condition is. And then we realized that one of the biggest problems is that people were communicating the wrong stuff. They were communicating the government information to their staff instead of the citizen information to their staff. So what we did, what we always do when we work with teams is we say, okay, cool. Step one of your strategy sessions is to define the strategic destination. And step two is to figure out what is the most meaningful way to communicate that to people. Now, often you can communicate the victory condition in absence of actually giving the full strategy. In fact, often that works better because it changes contextually depending on who you're speaking to. Let's say in San Francisco was your dev team. They wouldn't need to know everything that was happening. Uh, with regards to marketing, but maybe when you're speaking in Boston, it's your marketing team and you would want to communicate different information there. So we worked out, well, how do we communicate that most effectively around the organization that all the different elements know what they have to do, but they don't have to care what the other teams are doing? Because it turns out we don't have to fly in formation. This idea of teamwork and cooperation, feeling like we have to fly in formation is incorrect. We don't have to fly in formation. We just have to fly to the same place at the same time. We're just going to get there together. And that's all we communicate. And we'll work out and we make it as easy. And we strip away all the information that's superfluous to getting that victory condition um, made real for you. And then the individual teams will take to it. They can ask if they don't understand. And they can certainly ask if they need more information. But generally, we started giving them the littlest amount of information possible to allow getting their perspective into how do we best get to the goal. We just got to tell them why we think it's important or where we need them to be by when and why we think this is important. Once they've checked off their own internal boxes around how that would look, then it's entirely up to them just to go out and make it happen. And incidentally, a tool like TalkDraw that we've created, we believe is a perfect vehicle for delivering that uh, victory condition to the different uh, teams around an organization and then let them give the change back or make the change happen. Got it. So just if I'm summing this up, just to make sure I, I get it. And um, if this is what it, if what I think this is, is what it is, then I'm super impressed and very happy that you've um, distilled it down to such simple terms. Um, so it sounds like talk drawer is 
kind of like this mechanism that you use to help these companies or organizations find, you know, a greater mission. And once you put this mechanism in front of them, they can use it to, you know, be understood in their own, you know, point of views. And then they can also collectively use it to kind of get them to their destination. For sure. But the easiest way, I mean, bear in mind, that is if they take the full load from us. That's one way that you could use Talk Drawer. But if you're a leader and you're struggling with a, a team that doesn't seem to understand the importance of attention to detail, you can just log on and present a, a presentation on attention to detail and never come back again. For all intents and purposes, you can use it for the big way that we would love you to use it, which is as a strategic partner to your organization. And certainly with the uh, companies we're speaking to now and the first few customers that have signed up, that's what we're doing. But we would like any leader and any team anywhere in the world who really is frustrated about something, they want to talk to their, their team because they think their team is unremarkable or because they think that the, you know, the team isn't able to properly explain the value that they're delivering to their customers. And we have presentations for that. They must log on. They must search for the problem they want to solve. They must present that information to their team the next day for 15 to 20 minutes and then start creating a measurable change in their companies. So we want to be massively strategic, but we also want to be rapidly tactical. You know, if you just want to solve a problem, you log on, you find the, the, the talk that will change your business in the right way, and you present that. Well, I also want to be conscious of time because I know that we had scheduled out till 9.20. I mean, it's 9.25 at least my time. I didn't want to like hold you over, but I also wanted to make sure if there's something that we didn't touch on that you wanted to talk about, because I know when we first started, you you know, were as interested in talking a little bit about networking and communities. So I wanted to also like give you a chance to ask me any questions or figure out what else I you want to talk about. the one question I would ask you is, how does an online business, when you, when you create something, when you have a group of people that are on the same path, but separately, in your experience, how do you get people to realize that if they could come together in a physical space, and just meet up and, and share their ideas that, that it would have a better chance of survival or that they would become better? Like, how do you get people to self-organize? And how do you plant that seed in the first place that this is what they should be doing? Yeah, that's a great question. And so one of my actual previous guests, Cecil Phillip, um, said something great. And it was that when he was getting started, he actually he just needed somebody to talk to. And he, you know, realized he's like, man, like I created this awesome thing in my room. In his eyes, it's like this pot of gold and he just needs somebody to share it with. And so what he did was, is he started just joining different communities and he started going to just these places where he could just talk about technology, what he's building and learn about what other people are building. And he he said that one of the important things was actually having somebody ask him to present at one of these, you know, local meetups, one of these local events. And he said, yeah, like, I'd be happy to, but he's like, I'm going to need like three to six months for a presentation. And so it, it was like, wait, three to six months, like, you know, it, it it's something that's to him, he's not a, he wasn't technically a subject matter expert yet. And so it was kind of that like hurdle of, you know, I don't 100% feel comfortable, but I'm going to do it because someone asked me to um, from the community. And so I'm going to try at least. And so one thing I've noticed that, that happens often is that like there are these people that are in communities that see talent, right? Like it, it's kind of hard to scale in a way, but 
um, they see talent and they ask them, you know, hey, like, do you want to present? Do you want to do a talk? Um, do you want to ask questions? And so, one, just creating a culture where um, the leaders actually give people the chance to actually, you know, present and level up and, you know, do different things. That's kind of one way I've seen it work. I'm trying to think of like another way. And another way is just like small peer groups. So um, another guest that I had on, his name is Gary, um, and he runs this um, community called Orbital. And it's a community of practice for different project managers, product managers in New York City. And they get together and talk about everything product. And, you know, there's a whole bunch of different, you know, workspaces with different, you know, studios that, you know, they can go to. And it's a place where they go and build their networks. And so he has these, you know, sessions to where he brings together all these different product managers and they just talk about what they're going through, problems they're facing, challenges they have, um, current things that they're working on. And it's just, you know, a peer to peer network share. And so that's kind of like another example I've seen where um, just in the nature of Orbital being a community for products and, you know, uh, project managers, that is just by the nature of what Gary created. And so like people go and learn from one another and that kind of just happens organically. So I hope that answers it. But it's, it's, it is a little tricky to kind of instill that and, and drive people forward. Yeah, for sure. But it certainly plants a seed. So thank you. Definitely. Of course. Well, Rich, this has been so fun. Um, really appreciate you, you know, hopping on. And if for anyone that wants to either stay connected, connect with you, reach out, learn more about Talk Drawer, um, what would be the best way to get in contact with you? Well, if they want to get involved with Talk Drawer, we'd love them to try it out. Go and test the deck. There's a deck there that's free. You can just you know put an email address and get started straight away. Uh, you can go to talkdrawer.com for that. Uh, that's T A L K and drawer, like you put stuff in. Uh, and then if they'd like to engage with me, I'm at, at Rich Mulholland on Twitter and Instagram. And in the link, uh, the bio link is a link tree link that links to everywhere else. My Facebook, my newsletter, uh, you know, my video series, all of those things. So awesome. in the bio on Twitter is probably the best place to look to get all the information. Yep. And I won't give it away because there are some exciting things in here. So I'll let people come across those yeah. when they get to your Twitter. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. Thank you so much, Travis. I really appreciate it. It's been great chatting. Of course. It's been great. And I also want to just open the floor if there's anything that you, you know, are working on that we might be able to partner on or help with. Because I guess a little context in the meetup um, real quick. Uh, We got acquired by WeWork last year. um, And I've been working on the enterprise side to figure out how companies can work with, you know, meetup and also how we can just help the enterprises and communities. innovate and do whatever they need to. Um, and so if there's any ways that you think that I potentially could help you with TalkJour, or if there's ways that you know enterprise companies could value either working together or anything, just thoughts, um, don't hesitate to reach out because I'm always open to talk about that stuff. Thanks. I will absolutely be doing that. Maybe early in the new year, we jump on a call and uh, take it from there. Thanks for listening to the Community Builder Podcast. If you received an ounce of value from this podcast, share it with your friends. Oh yeah, don't forget to leave me a five-star review. I need those. Remember, each perfectly laid brick moves you one step closer to building your community.